Hi, my name is Susan. I've been arrested 32 times just for listening to people talk with each other. The problem was I used to hide in the bushes outside the windows of people's homes to enjoy listening to strangers talk to each other. It's just something I like to do. I get bored and lonely sometimes, you know. Hey, Susan, don't do all that. There's another way to enjoy random conversations? Now, thanks to the podcast show, I can enjoy listening to conversations with strangers and learn something new every week. No more listening outside the window just to enjoy a good conversation. Tune in weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe for updates on your favorite platform to the Toddcast show and help our podcast family continue to grow and share around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Toddcast show. My name is Todd Murat, your host, and I'm so excited to be here with all of you. The Toddcast show is dedicated to exploring the human condition through conversation with strangers. We explore the positive, interesting, and oftentimes shocking side of human nature. In each episode of the Toddcast show, I talk with strangers in a down-to-earth, old-school, and heartfelt way about their life. Nothing is ever scripted, everything is spontaneous, positive, and we never discuss politics. You won't know what to expect next. Join in the conversation to laugh, love, learn, and grow with others around the planet. Who will I call next? Tune in to find out every Wednesday at midnight Pacific or for playback anytime on your favorite podcast listening platform. And stay connected with us at ToddCastShow.com. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the ToddCast Show. Today, we're joined by our guest, Paul Zolman. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Hi, Todd. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Man, I'm glad to have you, dude. Where are you calling from? I'm in St. George, Utah. St. George, Utah. Wow. Two hours north north of Las Vegas. That's right. Not too far from me. Is that Mormon country? Well, there's a lot here, but there's a lot in Las Vegas. You know, the Las Vegas actually was settled by the Mormons as well. That's amazing. Yeah, we think. Yeah. I always associate Utah with uh, Mormons just because of having friends that were Mormon and lived there and stuff. And, you know, I guess it's not all Mormons anymore, right? But it was no. primarily. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty cosmopolitan right now. Right on. That's cool. Yeah, it's good to have a nice, uh, diverse crowd of people. And may I ask what you do for our listeners today, just so they'll know? Yeah, I... I actually am in the financial industry, but um, on the side, I've developed uh, something that um, that we're going to talk about today. It's a, it's a dice that I created that um, has the love languages on it. I got the dice copyrighted in, in 2017 and, and and wrote a book about it and recently published the book. became an international bestseller just a couple months ago. It's called The Role of Love. Wow, that's cool. So, I mean, is there like a title for what you're doing on the side or is, is it new or? Yeah. I like, I actually, uh, you know, Todd, when you create a business, you call yourself the president of the business or the CEO or whatever. So you create your own title is, and it's kind of funny that way that everybody creates their own title. So I've created my own title. I call myself a love language linguist. And that's a part, that's a person that just love, that knows the love languages backwards and forwards, knows how to recognize them and how to give it away. That's beautiful. Um, one of my favorite lines, um, <laughs> oh, this is a little off base, but uh, one of my favorite lines is I, I always like to tell people describing my my ability and agility as a writer is I'm a very cunning linguist. <laughs> well, yeah, nice. But, but yeah, usually, you know, I mean, obviously that's a double entendre, but um, yes, I, I think I like your love linguist. That's a very cool idea. Very cool idea indeed. Cool. Let's find out how you got there, man. Where were you born? So I was born and raised in Montana and um, was born actually in a very small town in eastern Montana. It's Glendive, Montana is where I was born. And it's not far from the North Dakota border. Uh, my I had a grandfather that actually came there in the early 1900s. Um, 
late 1900s and early 1900s, he was in Indiana. And in Indiana, he had uh, nine children. And then suddenly his wife passed away. I'm not sure if it was from childbirth after their ninth child. But uh, he was so distraught with that, Todd, that um, he decided he was going to sell the farm, sell all the equipment. And when people came to pick up the equipment and or came to the auction, he said, and would you like this child? And would you like this child? And would you like this child? And he did that systematically until he only had one child left. The child he had left that was named Benjamin. He gave all the children away. And then with Benjamin, he went to Montana, homesteaded, and uh, uh, that was part when the, they were doing the Homestead Act, he get 160 acres. And so he did that and and uh, found a school teacher that had not been married in there in Glendive. And with her, he had another 10 children, of which my father is number six. We, we like large families. I'm number 10 of 11. I've had eight children myself. We're kind of scaling it down. My children only have three. So anyway, that's where that's where I was raised. Wow, man, oh, that's amazing. And are your parents still together? My parents are very much together right now because they're de- both both deceased. Oh, they're, God. they're they're on the other side. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Daniel. Okay. okay, it's been a while. So I, I like I like how you put it though. That was cute. <laughs> they're, they're together. Yes, they are, man, and we all will be one day. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, wow. And and so as a child, uh, just reaching back, I always think it's kind of interesting how we remember things. Um, is there a place that you can go back to in your very earliest childhood that might qualify as the earliest memory that you have of your life? Probably one of the earliest memories is, is there in Glendive, and I remember remember as a child, my, my brothers were not very nice, and they— they taught me how to steal, and not a, not a very good thing to learn. But I remember walking down under an underpass there, and and it was only like three or four blocks going to the Safeway store, and then putting a little candy bar in my pocket, walking home. I feel bad till this day, Todd, about doing that because I didn't take it back. I didn't never pay them, and um, um, Safeway still thrived because of that. But that's that's beside the point. But I do remember that, and it's kind of a sad thing. But I also remember at that time, I, um, I, I believe it was in, in Glendive, but I'm pretty sure it was because I remember having to go to the hospital. I think I had a hernia or something and I had to go to the hospital. And, and I remember my father carrying me out of that hospital uh, uh, out there in Glendive. And it was just, um, for some reason, I wasn't you know, just in a position that that's how he carried me home. And it was just... It was a tender moment. I remember being a blanket. I remember being warm in his arms. I just, just a very kind memory that way. Also, remember going my my grandmother, this the one that had ten children, the second wife of my grandfather. Um, I remember going up the stairs to where she lived, and she would always always hear the pitter patter of the little kids going up up the stairs, and she was just so kind. She was she was a school teacher, so she absolutely loved children, and I remember her feeling just feeling loved in her presence. Um, I she must have had a lot of tests to go through in her life though too, because you know that grandfather passed away when my father was ten years old. My father was born in 1922, and so in 1932 is when his his father passed away. It's right in the middle of the depression, Todd. It's right in the middle of financial crises all around. And still my grandmother somehow was able to keep the niceness. My father, maybe not so much. He just had a lot of hard times. He uh, only graduated from eighth grade uh, and and became a truck driver. And so those those are my early memories. Very cool. Very cool. And did you get along with all your siblings? I know your brothers taught you how to steal, but like, how did it... How did it work out otherwise? Well, I stopped that. I, obviously, I had to. That wasn't wasn't going to work. Uh, otherwise, uh, I'm number ten of eleven. So that's a lot of people. It, and then they're all boys except for, uh, well, and the first three. My parents really had a hard time, Todd. My the first three siblings all passed away before age, before age um, two. So none of those first three made it to age two. 
The first one died uh, the next day. That had something wrong with their brain, I think, and just an abnormality there. The second one lived for a year and a half and then fell face first into a bird bath and drowned. And then and the third one uh, lived six months and then at, at the time we were trying to make the babies comfortable and my parents apparently put a pillow in the crib and, and that child suffocated, just didn't, lost its breath and suffocated. So so the oldest brother I have is actually the fourth the fourth child and he when he was growing up, he just felt like smothered. Instead of mothered, he was smothered. It just my parents were doting on him and just really trying to trying to help him. And he just re, re, uh, rebuffed that a lot. His whole life, he just rebuffed it. He just said, "Just leave me alone." It would just want to, you know, just like little little kids, little toddlers said, "I want to do it up by myself." And that was that was my my big brother. He just liked to do things by himself, and so. So he, he actually was the one sibling I was probably closest to, just uh, just felt an affinity with him and, and just did a lot of things with him and his family. That's uh, after my junior year of high school, I moved out of the home and, and moved in with him, lived with him for a year before I started taking off doing other things. Mm-hmm. So okay. as far as other siblings, I'm, I'm, I'm good with most of them right now. There's one, one. I mean, you, you just from time to time you just get little little things that happen, and and uh, it's easy to to stay away or to draw to to draw the line and then say, you know, I'm not I'm not going that far with the siblings. But yeah, so far for the most part, we're we're still pretty close. Right on. Good to hear it. Yeah, that's very healthy, and it's good to hear that you can do that. Um, yeah, sometimes in my case, my siblings, <laughs> you know, the moment that you question or even argue or debate, it's like they just cut, that. I got cut out, you know, for that. Like my family just turned their backs on me. They didn't want to work it all out. It's kind of a bummer, man. But like when I hear people like you that, you know, you have the conflict, but you can resolve it and you still love each other. That's the key, man. And it's really important. That's what family's supposed to be about. So I'm always inspired when I hear that because, you know, it kind of, I mean, it doesn't help my situation. I still feel like shit about my world, but um, <laughs> to be honest with you, you know, it's inspiring to think that there are still other people out there that really care about that. So my hope is to find, you know, my family of people in the world instead of having to, you know, go back because those boundaries have been blown a long time ago. And, yeah, there's no getting back from that. But well, I think there is, Todd, and I think that's that's kind of um, what I've been able to experience is that there there is a way to to kind of nourish that over over the years. But you've got to do you've got to do something, and you've got to yeah, well, something to be able to nourish that. And you know, I really had a lot of regrets from my childhood. I I thought I was trying to be a really good person, but my my father. You know, one thing about him being a truck driver is that he was gone during the week and then back home on Friday. And, and when he come home, the he'd, he'd, the first thing he would do is not greet the children, but he'd greet his wife, my mother, and he'd take her out. Always always the same place. He wasn't very creative about taking her out, but it was always the same place. And always the fact that he took her out was, was really something that stuck, stuck in my mind. He never failed. He just absolutely never failed to take her out every Friday night, and so I really admire that about my father. The venue was just just not the best place. It was the Maverick Bar, always the Maverick Bar, always over alcohol, and they're so they're while they're drinking, they're um, it, they're they're saying, "How was your week? How was your week?" And and my mother, she must have started at the at the top of of the the list, uh, the oldest child, and then went down. And when they got to number 10, when they got to me, uh, I'm sandwiched between, I'm a thorn between the two roses, Todd. I'm sandwiched right between two girls. And and the, the respect that my father had for women and for our, my mother transferred to his daughters as well. And if I just, just looked with a, a frown at them, you know, I was I was in big trouble. So, and and then by the time my father gets down to, or my mother gets down to me, 
telling about all, all the things that happened. My father's been annoyed. He's been annoyed. He's been annoyed. He's been annoyed. It's stacking up. It's getting bigger. It's getting higher. And then I'll flash. And it just kind of goes like that. And, and so it was kind of a pattern that uh, that he taught us in that way, that we just get annoyed, 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 and then we flash. And so I have it. My brother had it. And, and it's just something that we've kind of lived our life with. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate because it's it's just that anger. It's And it's to me, I found out it's more of a mindset of watching for thing, uh, things that other people do, which you absolutely have no control over, and then being annoyed about that. I mean, you, how why would you be annoyed at something that you have no control over? I, I would understand if it was me, and I and I did the thing, and I'm annoyed at myself. But why can why would you be annoyed at somebody else and what they're doing? Yeah, that's human nature. I've uh, been that way in my whole life, I think, and uh, I finally learned exactly that. You know, it's not about them; it's always about you. Because if you react, that's your deal, man. Like, yeah. you know, that's the thing. It took me a lifetime to figure that out. Honestly, I used to be a different person myself. I got saved with Jesus and uh, got into my spiritual life and um good for you you know really uh, made a difference man you know it's like i thought i was doing right before but like then when i recognized like through the eyes of love which is different and i know we're getting to that um you know it, everything changes you know because when you see through clear glasses and uh, you're looking for purity it's like any little dirt at all shows up immediately <laughs> yeah well, in, in this circumstance, uh, what happened was that, so I hated the weekends. I just grew up hating the weekends. I just dreaded it because either we get the belt or we get a severe spanking after this date that my parents have. Yes. Oh. As, much as, as much as you'd like them to date and have time together, the aftermath of that was just horrible for, for the kids. Um, I remember one time being spanked until I was, black and blue and I remember being black and blue for three weeks or more I mean it was that severe but it was back in a time where who are you going to call there wasn't really a lot of places that I knew of they weren't teaching it in school they weren't telling you that if this happens in your home this is what should what who you should call and there were, were really uh, wasn't really that uh, it was like Ghostbusters Todd who are you going to call it's, it's just who are you going to call and it's just it was like that for me and so the severity of that just it kind of ate at me. But, uh, but there was just, I found that, figured out that maybe there's only one way to escape, and that is just to leave. And um, so as, as parents, you want your children to leave. You want them to leave the nest, but you want them to also be successful. And I think that that's effectively what my parents did, as all my brothers and sisters actually fairly fairly successful in, in their own way. And it's just because they were kicked out of the nest and um, they had to learn to fly. And they had to learn to fly basically on their own. So at age 17, after my junior year of high school, and I left home, I went to live with this older brother that I was telling you about and stayed with him for six, um, six months. I was working to do my senior year on the road. And then he, he was transferred down to California. And then from California, I went for a couple of years to Japan. And while I was in Japan, I decided I was going to be writing my parents. I was going to write them once a week. And uh, that decision to do that was just something that, you know, I thought, you know, that's, a, that's probably a good idea just to let them know how I am. I'm halfway around the world. And I thought maybe they'd like something like that. It turned out that th that action alone, Todd, really melted a lot of the uh, the animosity or anything that it might have gathered from my childhood. It just kind of uh, cleansed me a little bit, being able to let it go through letters and just to write them letters and tell them tell them how much I appreciate the sacrifices that they gave for me when they were raising me as a child, and just in anything like that. At the end of that two years, I thought, you know, I've kind of developed a good habit here. And when you develop a good habit, you have your choice. Do you want to keep it or you want to stop it? And for most good habits, I would think that you'd want to keep it. And so I did with that. 
And I continued writing my parents once a week for 32 years until both of them had passed away. My father passed away on his 65th birthday, and my mother lived to be 88. But I remember talking with my mother about this and um, in the early 80s, and, and she just appreciated the letters. There were several times I missed during that time frame. Um, I wasn't exactly perfect on every every week, but I've got a, they when they passed away, they gave me all those 1,500 letters that I wrote. They gave them all back because this wasn't email time. This was time that you had to you had to type it on a typewriter or you had to um, uh, handwrite it and send it through through snail mail. And so she gave me all those letters. But but before she did that, she told me that uh, she expected that letter to be there in the mailbox every Thursday. And when it wasn't there on Thursday, she was worried. And when I found that out, I just made sure that she had that in her mailbox every Thursday. I, ma- I mailed it on time so that it would be there by Thursday. And uh, she appreciated that. And I think that the, my relationship with my mother and my relationship with my father improved because I wanted to honor them. And as you mentioned Jesus, but I just wanted to do that fifth of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And and I couldn't figure out how to do that because of where I came from. It was just kind of, there was a mental block there. How can I do that? They were as abusive that where I grew up. How could, that, how could I honor them for that? And I felt that, you know, I can write them a letter. I can keep in touch with them. Notwithstanding all that, and, and it did, it worked, Todd. It melted, melted all those barriers that we had before. And I melted it down enough that I felt like I had a great relationship with them, um, even to the to the day they passed. Wow, lucky you, man. That's good. That's very good. Um, just before we miss it, because I know we're getting into your adult life, is there any defining moments in your childhood that you'd say have uh, uh, impact on who you became? Well, I think that the the distaste for the abuse actually. You know, learning what not to do, Todd, you know, early in life helped me understand that I want to do what is right. I, I wanted to be a better father. I wanted wanted to to be kind to my children and to uh, to raise them in kindness and love and not fear and pain. Wow. Yeah, that's heavy, man. Very heavy. And so you ended up being a very loving person through your life, right? Like that's really where you're at. You're a loving individual, aren't you? I feel there now. I It always hasn't been that way, though. In fact, even until until I was, uh, I, well, at age 35, I remember still blaming, even that notwithstanding all the letters that I'd written, I still remember blaming my father for any failed relationships or any social graces that I missed. I felt like I had a lot of holes in my childhood, things that the gaps that that were not filled, things that they didn't learn. But just remember where he came from. He he only had an eighth grade education, never uh, excelled past that at all. I remember he had to do log books for, for being a truck driver. I remember him just kind of uh kind of doing that in private you know, like he we, we went to church um when i was younger but he would stay home and he never hardly ever went to church i, I remember going a few times but not much at all but he would stay home and do his log books and uh, how difficult that was for him to write and to do the log books and to read and do those things i never saw him read a book and and just just he had difficulty learning he had difficulty writing difficulty reading and just just uh, hard times that way. And when he, when he considered that, and I never did take that into consideration until I was an adult of, of the handicaps that he may have had because of only an eighth grade education. And as I put that into consideration as an adult, I had a better, a more loving appreciation for him for what he did do. Rather than pointing at faults and what he didn't do, I started to have that more loving relationship in my mind for what he did do for me. And I feel that way today. Yeah, that's beautiful. Very, very cool. Very cool. And so all this stuff um, leads into your adult life. Um, 
And relationships, of course, were influenced by all of this. Uh, were you a very social person in school, like through high school and all that and beyond? I thought I was. I, I was in the choir and 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 just we did a lot of events. Um, at one point in time, I was in a, a nine a nine person male, like a, a triple. Uh, I don't know what you call it, a double quartet with with one extra, and it's like a, those like a barber nine, nine people there. Uh-huh. And so when I when I sang with that, we went to uh, uh, we went to the the rest homes, and we we went to just different places, senior centers, that sort of places where we would sing. And I remember being social in that way, and liking liking that, liking being on the stage, and liking uh, singing, and liking doing the barbershop thing, and and seeing the reactions on people's faces. I don't know if that's more social, or rather, might may have been a persona that I liked, but I just liked being being on the stage in that way. And I didn't really think about it until you just asked the question about what I liked that way as far as sociality. I think I had a lot of friends during high school. In fact, um, it's so funny. Uh, you know, the, on the, the what, there's a website that tracks the class reunions and that sort of thing. On that website, when I put it up, put a profile out on that website, I put the uh, the fact that my wife and I um, in 22 years of 23 years of marriage we'd moved 19 times and then then as a, a antidote to that i said and for you jokers out there um that think that i had to move because i was running from the law that's not true and it was just you know just fun some fun yeah. make them laugh a little bit and so so there was a lot of people that commented on stuff like that and so i think i had a lot of a lot of friends in high school I ran track and and wrestled as well. Hey Paul, your your secret's safe with me, buddy. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just playing around. It. And I thank you, Todd. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm married now, but I, I, I actually this is my third marriage. Uh, the first marriage, Todd, and I I believe that part of my contribution to the end or the demise of that first marriage was this same thing that my father passed on. It's more of a generational thing that was passed on, and maybe he got it from his father for the little time he knew his father, the 10 years that he knew his own father. But this generational thing that you get annoyed, you get annoyed, you get annoyed, you get annoyed, and then you flash. And that that is just something that that I think that I would, with eight children that I had, I, you know, there would be many ways that you could be annoyed in a day. And if you flash, then, then they remember the flash more than they remember any, any good that you had done previously. It's almost like that, that flash of anger will wash out and, and, uh, obstruct any kindness or any love that you may have expressed. And I, and it just came to that point that it, I was the flash guy, and it was just, uh, uh, it seemed like I was ang- an angry person. And I really wasn't trying to be an angry person like that, but I just could not figure out, even if I'd made a declaration, Todd, that I'm not going to be angry. If you make a declaration of something you're not going to do, it's not a positive declaration. So I had to figure out how to make a, a better declaration or find a substitute behavior. And that's kind of kind of what happened with me is that all that flashing and everything kind of came to a head. I was divorced from that, that first wife after 23 and a half years, eight children. And I had primary custody of the children for a while. And then she took that back. And I was kind of living by myself, living actually alone. And I was... Um, it's, after we got divorced, I was I was going back into the dating field, and I was doing what I call destination dating. What I call destination dating is that I was living in South Carolina um, at the time, Charleston, South Carolina, and I would uh, find people on find more women online, and and we'd just chat and and kind of do the qualifications, and then pick a destination for where we're going to meet. Obviously, she's in a different city. I'm in a different city, so we meet have a, a meeting place. That's what I call destination dating. So I went on dates in Daytona Beach, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, 
Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, New York City, Nashville, Kansas City, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, Cabo San Lucas, Snowflake, Arizona, all these places, Todd, I did all this dating uh, different places over a year and a half period of time. And I spent more than $10,000 in doing that. And at that time, it was a, quite a bit more money than it sounds like today. But it was just a lot of money, and I just wasn't finding anything. So I settled in Phoenix, thinking that the, the contact I had in Phoenix was going to pan out, and it did not. Um, my I've got a, that older sister I told you about thinks I'm lonely. And she wants to introduce her neighbor to me. And so I said, uh, I don't. Yeah, I, you're seven hours away from me. I don't want to do some more destination dating. And she said, oh, come on. You know, a big sister, when big sister says that, you've got to do what big sister says. And, I, you know, you talked about childhood things. And, and one of the things that I did not get to do when I was a child, Todd, was change the channel on the television. I'm not 10 of 11 children. I can't, I don't have any power to do that. It was always their choice. And it was really never my choice to do that. So when Big Sister says that, you got just got to follow, step in light, and let's go to attention and salute and say, okay. Sure, sure. So, so, so I did that. Please, go ahead. I did that. I was We corresponded, um, mostly email and some messenger, really never heard her voice uh, for maybe three or four months. So I thought, this is really kind of light. And then it just kind of t- took a turn and thought, you know, I kind of like this situation. I kind of like this person, the writing that she was doing and the and the letters back and forth was just kind of a, a fun. It almost seemed like um, a very old type of, uh, of, of... Courtship. Yeah, courtship, a whole type of romance where, mm-hmm. where it was all letter writing and you didn't ever hear the person's voice. And the type of courtship that you might have in the 1800s or something that was just kind of mystique and like kind of intriguing that way. And so I ended up, um, after four months of doing that, just ended up moving to where my sister was here in, in the St. George, um, Utah area. And and um, we started dating a little bit more, more seriously. And it came to the time that now I need big brother approval. So I took this woman up to... Um, up 300 miles north, up to Salt Lake City, where my brother was living, and and he first thing that happened when I took her in this home was that my sister-in-law pulls her aside and says, "The only emotion that the Zolman family learned growing up is anger." At first, I said, "Oh, oh and denied it. Then it made me mad. Then oh. I thought, "Huh, she nailed it." I realized at that moment that if that's the perception that that people have of the Zolman family, I have an opportunity right here and now to change that perception. So I started reading the color code and I started reading the five love languages and I settled on the principles of the five love language because just like you, Todd, I was looking for something that would help me become closer to Jesus Christ. The five love languages, according to Dr. Chapman, and I agree, actually are things that Christ did ways that Christ loved in his lifetime. So so he, he spent time with people. He served people. He had the gifts of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. We, we love his words. And he touched people. He touched the eyes of the blind and they'd be able to see. Touched the ears, yes. ears of the deaf and they were able to hear. And I, I love that principle of those five love languages and how Dr. Chapman expressed it in that way. Could you lay them out, lay out the five languages completely, just so that people get it in their minds? What are the five languages? The, the service, touch, gifts, time, and the words. Beautiful, beautiful, and we all have the capacity to share in those and those exact dynamics. So that's perfect. Absolutely, five choices. Let's talk about it, man. So let's, so let's so, go there. So those five five love languages really distilled on me. I liked the principle. I couldn't get it. Get what Doctor Chat was trying to say about how to apply it, Todd. Just remember where I came from, though. I came from a a, a land of abuse, a childhood of abuse. So those five love languages didn't resonate real well with me. I said, 
this re- really people like like this and I and I finally was able to un- understand well if I guess Todd what your love language is and then I cater to that we're gonna be buddies I could understand that much but Todd I'm a bad guesser this is not gonna happen it's just not gonna work for me that way and then the other thing that Dr. Chapman had was that well if you take this survey then you can find out what your personal love language is and then what am I supposed to do with that, Todd? Um, advertising? Hello? Um, Hello? Well, like, sounds like you're supposed to create a dice game that's really smart and helps people tune into all this stuff. I, <laughs> sounds like. I like that idea, Todd. So, so that didn't work for me either. So if I advertise, I said, Hello, Todd, I'm Gifts. What do you have for me today? That did sound like love either. Right. So so I, I like the principles again. And I just remembered back when I was a... a child that that even though as dysfunctional as our family was we played games together and it kind of brought the family together i thought well what if what if this what if this is something if i made it a game maybe i could learn these love languages because after reading the book four or five times i couldn't spit it out if somebody offered to be a million dollars i probably could not spit all five love languages out i might get 60 percent. i might get three out of five and it's just wasn't working for me to instill it into me so that it became part of me. So I contacted Dr. Chapman and I said, Dr. Chapman, are you licensing these icons so that I can uh, make it into something something else, something that would make it easier for me to understand? He wrote back through his attorney and said, no, I'm not doing that right now. And I was grateful because those icons are really old. They were like, Back way back in the early '90s, when this book was published the first time, 1992. Yeah. And so I contacted an intellectual property attorney here uh, locally, Todd, and he, uh, he said that that uh, and his copyright attorney. He said that that theory is not copyrightable. Application is. Oh, so I decided I'll make my own application. Those I created my own icons and then made it again. So I put those icons, it, it, I've got a gift on the icon for gifts, I've got a person holding a, a serving platter for the service, I've got the heart that you make with your hands with a conversation coming out of that for the words, I've got an a hourglass on a hand for the time, and then two hands touching for the touch. Five love languages, six sides on the die. So I had to think of something for that six side on the die. And I thought, I put a, just put a hand out there with a question mark on it. So if you're from Las Vegas, you'd think that dealer's choice, that might be the way you describe that. Or uh, the question mark might mean mystery. But I like it's a to, wild card, man. A wild card. I like to call it surprise me, Todd. So on, on the surprise me day, what you're... If, there, let me just back up. There's just two instructions for this game. You roll the die every day. That's the love language you practice all day that day. All day to everyone. It's not like I did the dishes. Hoo-hoo, I'm done. It's not like that at all. It's not an event. But there's there's two dice, so. No, one. Oh, only one. I'm so sorry. I was thinking there was two. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that makes, that makes great sense. So it really helps people to get into the zone and once you practice the same thing through a whole day you know that that really locks it in man it does so so it locks it in and and over a 30-day period i actually lock all five of the love languages in so that you know them backwards and forwards what you're watching for todd is that you're watching for people to light up when they light up bingo you've hit it you you nailed their love language now you just take a mental note and wash rinse repeat do it over and over again that is how you do it. You don't have to stop the stop the relationship, pause, hold on a second, let me get this survey, take this survey so I know how to love you. You don't have to do that anymore. It's not you don't have the awkward moments anymore. You just watch what they like, what they respond to, and that's observe, the role of observation. Talk about that in the book I call uh, that I wrote called the role of love. There's a role of observation when they light up you've you've really made their day number one but you've hit on something that they really like and dr chapman's theory about people having a a a primary love language is true and with that primary love language what what he would suggest is that people would give that away in hope of reciprocity 
this isn't like that at all, Todd. What you're doing is on these days that you're rolling the die, you're watching for any opportunities to love in that genre, in that way, that day. Oh, yeah. And you're sending it out, and then you're watching for, for their reactions. And, and it's to everybody. It's not just the significant others. The significant other part, to me, when I looked at it from my standpoint, from where I came from, it looked like a part-time job to me. I said, I don't even have a significant other. I'm single. Who am I going to love? How am I going to get this out there? And I figured out that that the only way for me to do it is just to do it to everybody. And it really it really settled on me that this will keep us constant in a loving mode. It'll keep us constant in saying what's right about people, what can I love about that person, and it creates a mindset, Todd, that is a, a kind of a, a, a steel ironclad mindset that you're so busy watching for what's right about people and focusing on that and focusing on what, how you can love them, you forget about the annoyances. This replaced the annoyance, the annoyance, the annoyance, and the flash. I didn't have it anymore, and it only took 30 days for this to happen. Obviously, I still, I still roll the die because I want that lifestyle. I want the, the loving culture rather than the angry culture. And I like to compare it, Todd, to a, a stick. I, you know, I, The other day I was out walking. I found a walking stick while I was walking. And on one side of the stick, it was really smooth and nice, perfect spot for your hand. Other side of the stick, it had some, some where it looks like the twig had been cut off or something like that. It had some knots on it. So I call it my naughty and my nice stick. I know Santa Claus has a stick just like that. Naughty and nice. And so... Yeah. On the naughty side of the stick, when he, when my sister-in-law recognized that my family only knew what was on the naughty side of the stick, the anger, and the anger's on that naughty side of the stick. It's a culture, Todd. It's a it's a it's a culture of humor. It's a culture of vocabulary. It's a culture of the way you say things. It's the it's the what you laugh at. Everything like that is um, kind of encapsulated in that. Angry, angry capsule on that naughty side of the stick. I had, I had to break out of that. I didn't want that anymore, and I wanted to learn the love language, not the angry language. I already knew the angry language. I wanted to learn the love language, the loving humor, the kindness of humor. It's not pointing. It, it doesn't put you down. It's just there's kind humor out there. I wanted to be on the loving side of the stick. Okay. I need to uh, ask a quick question here, and I want to make sure... And I understand this, and maybe for our listeners too. Um, I've always thought that I have multiple love languages. Personally, there's uh, all of those things appeal to me. The you know, to be honest, every single one of those things appeals to me quite a bit, and it's all very important. How do you? I mean, how do you quantify limiting it to just one? Like, how is it that? you can narrow it down to just one. It seems like we all have multiple love languages, and I'm just curious about that. Can you explain it a little bit? Absolutely, Todd. I would agree with you that we we do. We're complex individuals, and we do have multiple love languages. And there's a time and season for everything. Um, there's a time for, for that physical touch. There's a time time for the the words, the comforting words. There's a time for serving one another. There's a time for gifts. There's a time for all of that. And, and I believe that most people like most of those type of love languages, but I'm, I'm in agreement with Dr. Chapman that there is a primary love language, one that each one of us likes more than another. And it may just be a slight edge that edges out another type of love language, but I believe that we can all, we can understand and we can agree that we, we could feel loved through all those love languages. Some people don't light up, though. If you're if they're words, and and you give them a gift, they're they're not going to light up like you like you would just saying that's my very favorite thing. You just did the best thing in my life. You really made my day. That's the type of thing you're looking for. You're watching for people that you're making their day, and that's your payday. When you see that you've made someone's day, they're going to go around to their friends and to the people that they associate, their their circle of influence, and they're going to make their day. And it's with with love that they'll do that. And I think that's that's what we can do. We can share each one of these kinds of love. 
And as I practiced it for 30 days, I didn't do them backwards and forwards. So I could see it when it came my way. Even though it might not be my primary love language, I could see it coming. And I'll say, oh, they're loving on me. It's not my primary love language, but I can respond knowing that they're sending love over my way. I can respond appropriately to that. And I think you're right. You can, you can see it that way if you improve your vision. Those that have just a primary love language kind of uh, 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 that is very strong in one area might have more of a tunnel vision. That's all I was saying about that. Mm, but how do you figure out what your love language is? I think that what I found out, Todd, is that, you know, I took the survey myself and I found out that physical touch, obviously, if I wasn't being whacked when I was a kid, I wasn't being loved. So that physical touch is what I thought was love. And and as I've grown and learned through this right now, I would say words are more, uh, more my primary love language, that it can change or that your awareness of it might, might change your mind about what your uh, primary love language might be. Interesting. So um, this survey that you refer to, do you have it or like, is it something that people can find? I mean, how would you even figure this out? I... Yeah. So the survey is in Dr. Chapman's book. And that's what I said, that that was the old way. The new way is just to watch people, just to make the observation that if you're in a genre on, on a specific day and you're say you're just sending out words, you're sending out compliments, watch when people light up when, when you compliment them. I was at church the other day, um, and and I saw someone that had a new haircut, and I said, "Cute haircut, Kathy," and and her husband was sitting right beside her, obviously, and I, I I'm not making a sending a pass or anything like that by saying that, but I just noticed that she had a haircut, and she lit up like a Christmas tree. Her husband. Her husband kind of had his head down. And he he did not even notice that she he, she had a haircut, and and did not say anything about it. But but because I noticed, and because I said something, she lit, lit up like Christmas tree. So word yeah. obviously make a difference for her. She likes the compliment. Okay, uh, that makes perfect sense actually. And I suppose when you get engaged in these things, the you know, things become self-evident, um, you know, just from learning and all that. Let's talk a little bit more about how you're doing things to help others with this now and anything that you might like to share along those lines. Um, and just to kind of keep reference of time, we've got about 15 minutes, but we're okay if we go over a couple of minutes. But I want to make sure people know exactly how it is that this new concept that you've created can benefit them and where we can find it and all that stuff. Um, Let me, that we can take advantage of this. Absolutely. Let me start, Todd, first with families. When I was testing this, I I tested it with a family of five children. The youngest was four years old. And this four-year-old one day rolled physical touch. And he jumps up and down, pumping his fists up and down and said, yes, physical touch, physical touch. And immediately went to st- start beating up on his brothers. So, I mean, it was um, it was kind of a the the mother had to kind of suppress laughter because she thought, well, that's funny that he'd think that that was love because maybe that's what his brothers were doing to him and maybe that's what he thought love was. So it became a teaching moment, Todd, in that situation that no, son, this is what appropriate physical touch looks like. It's the high five, it's the fist bump, it's the hug, it's the pat on the back, the pat on the cheek, just softness in, in that way. And so this, for families, this really becomes a teaching mom, a moment in that way, that we can teach each other and take responsibility for the love that we're sending out. Secondly, uh, uh, I, I te- I'm testing it currently in a classroom situation. And I'm focusing on K through six because, um, and I do that because the classes are together in the morning and usually they're together all in the afternoon as well. Oh, dude. It honestly couldn't pick a better audience. I was a campfire teacher K through five for a while and it was the best group of kids. They are so receptive and they love new information. Absolutely. So the whole idea, Todd, is that the class rolls the die at the beginning of the day. It takes two seconds to roll the die. 
and then maybe 30 seconds to explain class. This is the type of things that we're looking for today. And you could say four or five or six different suggestions of what to watch for that day to the children. So watch for these type of opportunities. At the end of the day, there, there's that to last 10 to 15 minutes a day, Todd, I'm going to suggest, and I've talked to several teachers, they would agree that that last 10 to 15 minutes a day is super non-productive time. The kids are antsy. They've been there all day. They know the bell's going to ring and they, it's just non-productive time. Let's take that time that's non-productive and let's make it productive. Have them write in a journal. I've got a journal page. So I wrote a book and then I put together a journal. So two separate books in the journal, it says, what I rolled today, what I'm focusing on today. And then it said below that it says opportunities I saw to love in that way. And then below that it says, what did I do about those opportunities? So in essence, what this child is doing is writing a journal of and keeping, uh, having accountability for what they did that day, how they behaved that day. And so if they can teach behavior at that age, they won't have to wait until they're 35 to have that aha moment like I did at age 35. Say, I'm responsible for my own things. And if, if I can blame anybody, then it's their fault and I don't have to change. I'm going to wash that away right now and teach them responsibility right in those primary school years so that they understand they're responsible for their own actions in that way. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and honestly, I mean, the love languages to me always seem like kind of a gimmick. And, uh, you know, I never really gave them any credence, to be honest with you. I mean, it sounds really cute and nice and all that. But um, I have always thought before that that was a waste of time. But as I've become an older person and matured past some of my own limitations and obstacles and and learn a little bit more about life and myself, you know, those things are actually really valuable because it really does cut to the chase of things that we're looking for always. And, you know, it's like most of us uh, live with conflict and uh, different things that we might not really like, but if we can seek out love in these creative, clever ways, not only does it uh, make us feel better, but it really spreads something more positive in the world. And I think that's important. You know, I really believe that when a person is focused on being a light for love in the world, that that light shines, man. And, and it can really warm up somebody who's cold in the darkness. And, you know, um, I've been to the place where, uh, my life, you know, was so bad, or at least I thought it was that I wanted it to end. And, uh, there's people who've tried to make that happen. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, when you get through that and like find that there's purpose and something in your life that is worth living for, which is you and, and your contributions to the world and you recognize you have value, it turns everything around. So even people who are deep in, you know, depression or despair or having gone through a divorce, you know, for example, that's very traumatic for people, abuse, rape, you know crime, all that stuff, man, it's really important not to let that stuff hold you back. I think it's brilliant, actually. Um, really neat idea. I love it and the simplicity of it. But when you talk about the children, that really gets me. And I like that. Um, I think it's really smart and healthy to get kids focused on something that's really useful and productive outside of just schoolwork, you know, absolutely. So, like that's lifelong stuff you're talking about, brother. And, um, it's great. I, I just think it's great. And, and I'll tell you this, and I think you and I are kind of on the same page in a way, but like you're, you're way more innovative than I am. But back in the nineties, I did that campfire thing and it was great. I was in college and I had all these little kids. I went uh, between five different schools and I had classes of K through two and three through five, I think is how it was spread out. And, um, my thing was, um, and I got really lucky. I was, I was actually the most talked about campfire leader they ever had. Nice. Good for you. Because the, the kids loved me and like, I always love children and always have a magnetism to kids and animals. And it's just always like that. But the, one of the things that made that happen was 
I just threw away all of the instruction booklets. Like they gave me a whole bunch of stuff. Like here's the lesson plans that you can use for the kids. And I was like, forget that. And, and so I ended up uh, doing it like this, all of my campfire classes, we'd start out together in a circle and we'd talk about what's happening in our lives and like, what's going on? Is there anything bothering anybody? Is there something that you're happy about? Tell us a little bit about what's going on. And, and, one of the little kids, they're so cute. They'd always speak up and talk about some problem they had or like they had to wait in line and at the slide and they were upset or something happened in class and we'd talk about it and it would really just put like, it was so cute, but like it would just put so much, you know, light on um, these little kids and, and how they think and all that. And it really just changed a lot, you know, for me, um, because it gave me a chance to see things a little bit differently. You know, kids are very wise, and whether we realize it or not, we lose that innocence over time. And Absolutely. you know, love is the key to keeping you know in in touch with that innocence. But what I was driving at is that I really had a great experience learning from those children, and also just giving them an outlet that was a little bit different and you know let's talk about this and then whenever there was conflict or there was a problem between the kids okay come on over here let's sit down and talk about it what happened and i'd make them explain what happened and who's right who's wrong what you know what's right and what's wrong and let's make up and move on you know, yeah it's like, absolutely it was, it was that, that was in the 90s you know well and i think that there's really you bring up a really important point todd that that it's really it's critical for us to preserve that innocence of those children, and I think the journalizing of what they what they loved at the at a, as a first grader, what they loved as a second grader, third or fourth or fifth or sixth grader, anything like that that we could preserve for them, so they'll write write that page that day, and the teacher does a, a pass fail check mark whether they did it or not. In in my area, if they do it for fifteen days. They get uh, the yogurt land. The local franchise franchisee of yogurt land is giving them five ounces of free yogurt for that month. They did it. If they'll do it for 25 days, so anywhere from 15 to 24, they'll get that five ounces of yogurt. But for 25 days, they do it every single day of, of school for the whole month. They're going to get 10 ounces of yogurt for free. And it's just a great little incentive for them to keep that journal. Think of it 10 years down the line. They're going to look back and say, I have my first grade journal. And the, whoever they're dating at the time will say, well, I want to see that journal. I think that'd be very cool to see that journal. <laughs> Read that journal. And, and it's just going to be a fun thing that's a, a love legacy journal that could be passed on for generations. Now the teachers, I can't can't really lay the responsibility on the teachers to keep all those pages till the end of the year because that's going to be just a, a, a nightmare to try to do that. So I was it just encouraged the teachers to send the page home after they checked that they did it, but maybe just keep a, a a screenshot or something about the stories, something of great story that they can shout out to the rest of the children. Said, look what Johnny did here. Look what he, how he loved to that day and just maybe spotlight a child that wrote something that was worthy of sharing with the whole class, something they, they noticed, something they did, and that way spur better involvement in, in the program, spur better involvement in being a more loving person throughout the classroom and throughout the, the whole school. Absolutely. And I hate to say it, but we're almost there. Um, I just don't want to miss anything, though. Is there anything in your mind or in your heart that you might like to share that we missed today? Because I don't want to I don't want to miss anything. So if there's something that you were thinking about that we just didn't happen to come across or something that you feel is important to share with our listeners, what would that be? Just one last thing, Todd, that I'd like to share. Um, you know, we, from the Sanskrit uh, dialect in northern India, we get a, a few very nice words um, in English. One's called nirvana, and then another one's karma. But the one I want to talk about today is namaste. At the end, at, at the end of a yoga class, the the instructor is going to say namaste, and then it's kind of class class dismissed. But it really doesn't mean class dismissed, or it doesn't mean that it's over. It means literally means, and uh, from a Hindu Hindu 
type of interpretation. It means the God in me sees the God in you, or the divine in me sees the divine in you. That's what we're talking about for this mindset. We're saying, what's right about you? What can I love about you? What is divine about you? And we're focusing on that. Instead of following the media and saying, what's wrong with that person? And print all that wrong stuff about that person. We're saying, what's right about that person? Focusing on that, magnifying that, like a magnifying glass, enlarging that, watching for the divine in other people. And I think that's really important that we remember to do the namaste every day. Watch for the divine in people every single day. That's brilliant. And that has nothing to do with yoga for those of us that are Christian or something and think yoga's weird or whatever, but like it's just a word. It is a word, yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you won't be inviting demons into your life if you say namaste. It's just a really great reminder. And honestly, I didn't understand that. I thought that namaste was a greeting. Like, it, I mean, it is, I guess, but like it's a much deeper greeting. It is. And, it's absolutely uh, deep. And it, an acknowledgement. That's a beautiful thing. Very important. Very important. And for those listening, and they would like to read your book and get this wonderful new dice that you, or die, I should say, that you've created, how do they do that? And what can they expect if they reach out to you? And where do they go? So for less than a, a, a therapy session, quite a bit less than a therapy session, <laughs> you can actually have the journal, the book, and the die they can go to my website, rolloflove.com, R-O-L-E of love.com. You roll the dice, R-O-L-L, the die outside of you. You change within when you actually do the roll of love and send it out. R-O-L-E of love.com. Very cool. Very cool. And they can order this right now? They can. It's available. Love it. That is great. And then um, just out of curiosity, do you share this like with your neighbors and friends and stuff? And have you seen results from those experiences? I do. And I've got a pickleball uh, team that I play with every morning for, for about an hour. I start at six in the morning and we play for about an hour. And, and instead of, you know, in tennis, they start the game love all. But we're a little bit different in pickleball. I've taught them to start the game saying, love everyone. And it's just it's something that we do every day. And it's just, just a fun thing like that. You can apply this in so many ways, Todd. You can apply it at, at your play, at work, at home. Just, just be consistent in sending out love all day long. Absolutely. That is beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Paul Zolman. What a cool idea and a neat way to get into the minds of young people. And uh, this would be something that would be really useful for parents looking to kind of focus the child in a different direction and help them to understand some things outside of just the normal societal influences, right? I mean, that's a big part of this too. Absolutely. Is, Trying, trying to reprogram the garbage that the digital world has put in our heads and hearts. <laughs> That's right. We, 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 can do better. we can do better. That's for sure. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword and uh, it has its trade-offs and all that, but I, I love it and hate it at the same time. You know, it's like there's so much going on and everything, but the way that it... Um, influences our dopamine hits and different things that translate into our daily experience. It's really unhealthy and unnatural. So I love that you found a very simple and pure way to recapture the essence of the human experience and the spiritual aspect of that. I've just got to really commend you on that. That's a very smart idea. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Todd. It's been, been a pleasure uh, to be with you today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate you being here as well, Paul. And if anybody wants to, they can reach out to you at your website once more, just so that they know what it is. Rolloflove.com. Love it. Thank you very much, Paul Zolman, for being a guest today on our show. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. Thank you, too. Bye, Todd. My, my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Toddcast Show. If you found today's episode helpful and meaningful, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on what's next. Remember that the Toddcast Show is all about community and connection. So follow the podcast on your preferred social platform to keep updated on everything I've got in store. 
also check out toddcastshow.com to find out more and stay connected with me, Todd Mira. Be sure to tell your friends and family about the Toddcast Show so the podcast family can continue to grow and share on an international level. See you over on the next episode. Hi, I'm Todd Mira, host of the Toddcast Show, and I want to share something personal with you today. Throughout my own life, I've struggled with issues I didn't even realize I had. Things like depression, past trauma, PTSD, and feeling disconnected from the people I loved the most. It took me hitting rock bottom to realize I couldn't fix myself alone. I needed help to unravel the tangled knots within my life, find myself again, and become stronger in the areas I was weakest. It wasn't an overnight transformation, but with time, I learned to change my thinking, my attitudes, and my entire paradigm for the better. I learned that it's good to ask for help, and that's why I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Toddcast Show. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and the best part, it's 100% online. You can participate from anywhere, anytime that works for you. It's simple to get started. Simply answer a few questions about your specific needs and personal preferences in therapy, and BetterHelp will match you with the perfect therapist from their network. It's really that easy. You can message your therapist anytime you need support and schedule a live session when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is committed to ensuring that you find the perfect match to guide you along your journey to well-being. As someone who went through therapy and came out way ahead of where I started, I want to invite you to take this step to a healthier, happier you today. My life was transformed through therapy, and yours can be too. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is hand-picked for you, all at a shockingly affordable price. And as a special offer for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month by using the special link, betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. You don't have to face life's challenges alone. BetterHelp is here to support you through the big and small issues of your life in a way that can really make a huge difference, both short and long term. Take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast to get started today.